Planning a legacy is emotional work. The cost of not planning can be devastating to a family, a farm, and the future. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Monday, May 22nd, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk about making a plan before you need it. Who needs to be in the room for farm and ranch estate planning? Why is it so complicated? And how can you find the assistance you need to update your plan as your operation and your family changes? SDPB's Nate Wack is with us for an update on state high school tennis. We explore the landscapes of Dakota with author and ecologist Carter Johnson, plus an arts and engineering collaboration that brings the classical music stage to you. That's coming later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. South Dakotans can now get a closer look at local pollinators. The South Dakota Discovery Center in Pierre has a new honeybee observational hive. Joining us now on the phone, we have Dr. Rhea Waldman. She's executive director of the South Dakota Discovery Center. Rhea, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So this is all about getting up close and being able to watch the activity in the hive and the life cycle of a bee. Describe that for our listeners. What does it look like and how close can you get? Oh, you can get really, really close. Um, Apart from touching, you're right there nose to nose with the bees if you want to. We have three hexagonal hives. Um, They are right now moving. They've moved into one of them and they can expand. So we have room for growth. Um, One of those hives can hold a couple of thousand bees, and so we're hoping that it will grow over time. But right now, we have a small colony that is trying to get settled, and um, the only thing that is keeping that is between you and the bees is a plexiglass sheet, and you can watch them right there build their hive. So it's absolutely wonderful because we we moved in two weeks ago, and they have already built honeycomb that is about um, apple-shaped size and it's amazing to watch them work. What needs to happen to establish a a colony, a hive? What needs to to happen to keep them healthy and thriving? I mean, obviously you have to have a safe space for them so that they can start building, but otherwise you need a a queen and then you need some worker bees and that is pretty much what you need. In the beginning, so two weeks ago when we got them, um, right now, you can hardly believe it when you look outside with, with everything blooming. But two weeks ago, we actually had hardly any flowers out here in Pierre. And so we first had them just in the hive with, a, um, with sugar water on top. So there's a little, just a mason jar upside down with some holes poked into it with sugar water where they could feed so that they can stay. And that's actually the way that you can overwinter them. Um, if there's no flowers or if there's a shortage of flowers, you just give them some sugar water and they're going to be fine. And that's all they need. And it's hard to believe that that is how they build what they need, just with some sugar water for now. Yeah. Well, and otherwise, so our bees can actually, I'm sorry, our bees can actually go outside. So we have a tube that connects from inside the Discovery Center to the outside, to so one of our windows. And so they go out, forage, and come back. Yeah. So we're coming off of World Bee Day, and it is time to once again remember how vulnerable honeybee populations are. Here in South Dakota, here on the Great Plains, what are some of the threats, especially as they connect with agricultural practices to pollinators? So there is not a lot of places. So when you when you drive around, I was actually really surprised to see how many honey um, bee boxes are around so hives that are in boxes that farmers put up which is phenomenal 
because there are a lot of uh, flowers to be pollinated by the bees, but obviously they need a habitat. And if you don't give that to them, there are no trees or other good places where bees here could just naturally find habitat. That is just, as we know, out in the plains, a rarity that you find a tree and um, no other structure where bees can live. And so if you don't supply them with a place, that is a problem. And then our winters are really, really hard. So outside, it is really hard for the bees to survive. Um, I had a tragic story of a friend of mine who actually got into beekeeping for her father-in-law, and they simply forgot that in the winter, you have to take the snow down from those hives. You have to keep them aerated because otherwise they don't get enough oxygen to survive. That's something that I'd never thought of, and she didn't either. And that was a rude awakening. The other thing that we noticed the other day, so we had that smoke coming from Canada last week, and um, the bees were out, and they did not agree with that, and I did not expect that. Like That was something that we didn't realize, and so we lost a big part of that hive already because they went outside. We you know, didn't realize we should have kept them in, and also how do you keep them in? I mean, they go outside. And so um, a lot of them didn't come back. We're still hoping that they will come and they took shelter somewhere. But it might just be that, you know, that that um, the pollution is actually also affecting the bees. Yeah, uh, fascinating and heartbreaking at the same time. When you're at the Discovery yes. Center and you're looking, at, you know, up close at the hive, mm-hmm. what do you want people, I mean, everybody looks for the queen, you know, can, mm-hmm. can we find the queen? <laughs> what are some of the things that you want to look for that will help you understand the life cycle of the honeybee better? So you can actually see really the different cycle. You can look into the honeycomb, and especially once it gets bigger. Right now, oftentimes the entire honeycomb is covered in bees, and you see nothing. You see just a big lump of bees. They really like to cluster close, and it's just a big, moving, writhing bundle of bees. Um, If you're lucky, you see the queen, but only you can right now really only tell that it is the queen because they're all protecting her, the workers, by her having an orange dot. The queens often get marked so that you know, and they get marked by year. This year is a dark orange. And so when you see this dark orange, you know that this is a 2023 honeybee queen. Yeah. <laughs> an interesting fact. And so you can see that. But then obviously look into the hive. You can see when they're laying eggs. You can see um, if, it's a, if it's a drone or if it's a worker. So you can actually tell by just observing the bees very closely, looking at the shape of the bee, what kind of bee is it? Is it a male? Is it a female? Is it the queen? Are there some eggs in there? Uh, we're hoping they will obviously produce honey for themselves. We're not going to take the honey away from them. The, the shape of the, the hive is not set up for getting the, hi- the honey out for us. It's there for feeding our, our um, hive. But you can see the honey in the, in the cells too, which is phenomenal. And then the most exciting thing for me is the waggle dance. So bees communicate. They're super social. And so if one of the bees finds a fantastic spot of flowers where, the, where there's lots of pollen and nectar to be found, they come back and tell the others. Mm-hmm. And the way that they do that is they do a waggle dance. They waggle in the hive, and the angle that they're taking is the direction of, relative to the sun, the direction of where they just found that spot of nectar and flowers. <clears throat> and then they waggle. And depending on how fast they waggle, they actually the more the faster they waggle, the greater is that spot of nectar. <laughs> so they get excited because there's lots of nectar, so they waggle really fast. And then the entire hive follows that waggle so that they learn where to go 
And then they do this elaborate things. And we actually have, of course, we're hands-on science center. So just observing isn't quite enough for us, although we love observations. But we also have a waggle dance um, painted on the floor. So every kid can also do that and tell the other kids where maybe they, they do something else. They say, this is where I live. Or they say, this is the best exhibit to play with that I love the most. Nice. <laughs> so they can follow the waggle dance of the bees. Here's where we're going to go get ice cream as we play at the South Dakota <laughs> right? exactly. Discovery Center. And that speak- will probably be the right thing. Right. <laughs> and and speaking of, this is uh, the display is in memory of a young person who loved to observe the world. What do you want to say about... Um, childhood in nature and, and who this is inspired by. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So one of the, our families, our local families, who have been really, really supportive, there was her grandniece um, was taken way too early by a tragic accident last year. And so she came to us because she knows us from, from long before and said, you're, you know, our little, our, the little girl just loved nature. Um, she made a beautiful painting of a butterfly, and um, she just loved being outside and watching, and that is such an important thing. And so they said, can we do something in memory of her and also to support others in their observations and other children and growing up in nature and not just observing but also recognizing how much we need nature and how important it is for us. Yeah. And so we have a little a memorial tile for her right with the exhibit um, to remember Alyssa. And um, this is just a really important piece because fostering the curiosity of kids really leads to critical thinking adults and people that make their own observations and learn from those and you know become better people and we live and steward the nature that we all need and can't live without. Yeah. So it was a really wonderful thing and we were really happy that Kathy Lester and her family let us honor Alyssa's life like that with this exhibit. Well, I am very happy to learn so much about honeybees today and to talk with you, Dr. Rhea Waldman. She's executive director of South Dakota Discovery Center. Go by and check out their new honeybee observational hive. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The 2023 South Dakota High School Activities Association Tenants Tournaments wrapped up last week. Those tournaments gave us a peek at the state of tennis in South Dakota, from the dominant players in the game to who might be up and coming. SDPB's Nate Weck returns to the program with a recap. Nate, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. How are you today? I am excellent, and tennis is one of those sports I could watch all day. Can't play it, but I can watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the state tournaments, where they were at, and uh, let's go over some of the, the big wins and the surprises. Yeah, so this um, this is the third year now with high school tennis in South Dakota where we're under the umbrella of a two-class system. So Monday, Tuesday last week was the Class A boys tournament. And Thursday, Friday was the class double A boys tournament. So Monday and Tuesday obviously was um, you know some of the some of the smaller schools and stuff like that. Um, but Rapid City Christian was a big win for them. Not only did they win the state title, but it was their first in program history. Um, and look at some of the other schools out there. You know, St. Thomas More's had tennis for a while. You know, Rapid City Stevens, they're always in that conversation as one of the top tennis programs in the state. Um, so I you know, and after just talking to some of the players and the coaches and stuff afterwards, it, it did mean a lot for them. Plus, you know, it, 
I have to imagine, too, it makes a ride across the state go a little bit quicker when you win a state championship to go home <laughs> as well. So um, I think, you know, they were obviously really excited about it. And, um, yeah, it's always fun to witness um, new schools um, doing something that they haven't done for the first time. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then on the Thursday, Friday, Sioux Falls Lincoln, a very f- familiar name when it comes to tennis in South Dakota. Um, for, for the boys, it was their ninth straight. Um, now, there was that one year where the state tournaments were canceled with COVID. Um, so, you know, this potentially could have been the 10th straight, possibly. Um, yeah. And just for the record, too, Lori, Sioux Falls Lincoln has all six of their varsity starters coming back next year. Um, so they're already kind of loaded up again to try to make that run for a 10th one. So it was kind of cool to, you know, you, you see one that's kind of thought of by a lot of programs and players in the state of that dynasty in Sioux Falls Lincoln. So to end the week witnessing that, but I do, I, you know, I, I want to go back to it too, because it was really cool to see Rapid City Christian get that first title for their boys at the beginning of the week. So yeah. two really great tournaments and it was a lot of fun. I am a graduate of Sioux Falls Lincoln, so I'm always kind of rooting <laughs> for them. But I remember a conversation we had where the coach sort of said, hey, you know, don't give me too much credit. You know, we, we pull from parts of Sioux Falls there where there are tennis courts, tennis courts close to, you know, in the community. So tell me a little bit, and maybe you have some information on Rapid City, too. With kids coming up, having access to a court where you can go knock a ball about is is an important way to get kids into a sport. What can you, what can you tell me about that? Right. So, like, you know, if you look at where the location is, I guess, of, like, let's just say a Sioux Falls Lincoln, right? So, you know, McKinnon Park, not that far away. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty much just up Cliff Avenue and just a little bit west of Lincoln High School. So it's, it's not too far away um, for those kids to have access to that facility. Now, what makes this year unique is Tomar Park just opened up a brand new tennis complex, which has 12 courts. So now instead of going north of Lincoln and a little bit west, now you go west but south of, it's just south of 229 in Sioux Falls, just on the other side of the river. And and it's absolutely um, gorgeous. Like we're talking Tomar Park, when they built the tennis complex there, they they did it right. They've got shade for people to sit under. Um, There's heaters that are built in. Um, there's misters that are built in underneath those shelters. So it's really prepared um, to allow for a more enjoyable experience as far as the spectators go. And yeah. and I say that because when Rapid City Christian won the title on Tuesday, we had beautiful weather. I was getting a sunburn on Friday when Sioux Falls Lincoln won it. You know, I was going back to my car to get a sweatshirt because it was just, you know, yeah. the long sleeves that I had on just didn't quite do justice. Because, you know, you live in South Dakota, who knows what the weather's going to bring. So, right. but the, the new complex that they have at Tomar Park is absolutely beautiful. Um, it's 12 courts, which is an upgrade over McKinnon. Now out in Rapid, Sioux Park had 12 courts, but that's getting a facelift as well um, with renovation to also cater a little bit more to the spectators, but also give the kids that edge up on the experience as well. So you talk about the two locations where there's a state tournament, Sioux Falls with tennis, Rapid and Sioux Falls. Sure. Um, the, the, the venues are going to be great for these kids and for spectators for years to come. Yeah, but if you're in Jefferson or you live in the Washington district, that's even further away. <laughs> Those ideal courts right, are, exactly. are, you know, not that there aren't tennis courts scattered throughout our parks, you know, throughout the city, but it's worth thinking of, of how you invite and who you invite into a sport like tennis. 
Um, any final thoughts, athletes that are going on to college? You said the, a lot of the Lincoln varsity team is returning. What about that Rapid City Christian team? Yeah, so Rapid City Christian, um, you know, they were just as impressive. Um, you know, they won eight of the nine flights mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I guess the one thing that did kind of strike me is they've got two senior starters, um, but their coach, Coach Granny, was very optimistic about what they've got coming through because a lot of these JV kids are watching the varsity kids. They want to be like them. They're hungry for those two spots. You know yeah. how that goes, you know, the inner competition and stuff like that within teams. So I think there's a lot of optimistic optimism too, that this could be a good stepping stone for Rapid City Christian and it could lay the foundation for future years to come as well. SDPB's Nate Wack, pack your sunblock and thanks for talking to us. We appreciate your time. All right. Thanks Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, estate planning is complicated, and it is even more so for farmers and ranchers. So what can you do to make sure your family reaps in the future what you are sowing today? Heather Gessner is the Livestock Business Management Field Specialist at the South Dakota State University Extension and is with me on the phone. Heather, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's good to be back. Thanks a bunch for the invitation. So first, planning is not a solo endeavor. Who needs to be in the room for the conversations about estate planning for an operation? Yeah, so when we start talking about farms and ranches and who needs to be there, the conversation gets a little complicated um, because usually I tell the individuals that they need to start with their spouses or their partners in the operation. Um, It seems kind of like a no-brainer, but uh, there has been uh, experience provided that says we're not always 100% sure what the plan is between mom and dad. Yeah. So we really need to start there and, you know, then move on to those kids that are maybe back in the operation, maybe the in-law that's back on the operation. And from there, move into a conversation with uh, any off-farm kids and those that type of thing. So really starting with mom and dad and then growing the conversation as we make more plans and have more ideas. Do you find that a lot of people didn't have planning in place for them? And how does that change how they see their responsibility? Are they more motivated because they had a mess to clean up? Or are they, you know, less motivated because, well, this wasn't done for me. People will figure it out. What what sort of, um, you know, history do people bring into the conversation to begin with? <laughs> uh, with the producers that I talk to, you know, I've had several that, you know, they introduce themselves and they tell me about their operations a little bit and then say, and I just finished cleaning up so-and-so's problem. I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Um, you know, so they are really motivated to put some things into place. Others that come and are starting this conversation and trying to look for a plan, you know, they haven't had any experience really with a bad transition or that bad estate plan, but they're really looking to pass it on to the next generation. And they want to make sure that the things that they've built, you know, whether that's land, equipment, you know, whatever that legacy is, they want to make sure that that's passed on the way they want to, and it doesn't have to be sold to take care of nursing home bills or medical expenses um, or get into issues with, you know, I've got seven children, but only one of them are here on the farm. I can't split it up 
and have him be able to continue. So yeah. they're really looking at bigger goals than, you know, just avoiding a fight or those types of things. Yeah. So you're having a sustaining the legacy um, in Lemon, South Dakota, on June 7th through June 8th. And I'm wondering if someone was going to a program like that, to a workshop, what do you need to do before you arrive at the workshop? What's the pre-planning look like? Well, you know, a lot of times I really encourage families to come as many people as possible to these sessions. So everybody that's involved hears the same message. Um, but other than that, if you did some pre-conversations about, you know, what do we want to have happen to this operation? Um, and that can include anything from where do I want to live when we are no longer able to be physically involved in the operation? Uh, where do we think we want our assets to go? What about anything that's of value either, you know, monetarily or emotionally, you know, for household goods, you know, have some of those conversations. So you're kind of thinking about that transition of things to the next generation. Um, you know, and the things can be anything from the $10,000 per acre piece of ground that we're looking at transitioning and the money that's behind that to a grandfather clock or a print or, you know, anything like that that is in the house that might be wanted to be transitioned as well. Yeah. You know, just mentioning the land and saying, you know, we can't divide it up for everybody and have it be sustainable for the person who's living there and working the land. That's one reason this is so complicated for farmers and ranchers. What are some of the other sort of historic reasons why this is as complicated as it is compared to somebody who maybe just owns a business or you know has a resident and, and they have a retirement account, for example? Why is it so complicated? Yeah, one of the big complications, you know, for small businesses, farmers and ranchers, is that we pretty much have all of our eggs in one basket. We don't have those extra retirement accounts or a life insurance policy that we can say, okay, on-farm kid, you're getting the farm, and all my off-farm kids, you're going to get something of a similar value in the form of the life insurance policy or the retirement account funds, you know, Maybe 20, 30 years ago, we were able to make that kind of an equitable situation because we could get a life insurance policy for a million or $5 million to spread out. But the value of our crop ground and our farm ground has increased so much lately that it's a 10 or $15 million farming operation, and we just can't buy that much insurance at any kind of reasonable rate. So the transition becomes that decision and that discussion of fair and equal and fair not being equal for most of these family operations. And, you know, if you've been off the farm for quite a while or you married somebody that's not from agriculture, they might just see the dollars right. component of that side of things and say, well, that's not fair for you because you didn't get $10 million. You got 150000 you know, so that's part that really becomes tricky for those small business owners, farmers and ranchers trying to figure that plan out. Yeah, you've got you got a print where someone else got the land and the income. Are there ways to, you know, push things forward to share income? Are there what sorts of solutions are people coming up with other than 
you know, coming to consensus and understanding that if, you know, $15 million operation is not mean that you are a millionaire <laughs> in many ways. Right. <laughs> this is a humble living uh, that you are experiencing and a lot of work and a lot of risk that you're assuming as well. Are there creative yeah, solutions? You know that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so some of the things that we're looking at, you know, with that whole conversation of being, you know, <laughs> asset rich and cash poor, basically, um, you know, we've looked at different buy-sell agreements. So there's a longer-term period where maybe the off-farm kids are receiving their inheritance slowly over a period of time, uh, which provides the opportunity for the on-farm kid to, you know, get an, a purchase loan or something like that. It's part of their operating note so that they can, you know, basically buy the ground back from their brothers and sisters over a longer period of time. There's different rental contracts that some families have used. Um, and, you know, and then there's trusts and business entities and, you know, the triple LPs, the limited liability, limited partnerships, or an LLC type of um, entity that people are putting together so that they're giving shares of the business. Um, you know, maybe they're non-voting shares, but you get a share. So when there's income, you're part of that distribution component. Mm -hmm. So there's different methods and different ways that we can go about looking at that transition so that we can try to pass on, you know, some of the business components that way uh, for that landowner. But there's, there's a big education curve and there's a lot of moving parts to it. And sometimes that's the part that really puts everybody into that. Um, you know, you're, we're kind of froze on all the options that we have available to us. And that's what we're trying to take out of the equation with the estate planning conferences that I host yeah. across the state. From the sense of you mentioned, you know, where do we let's say mom and dad are, are, where do we want to live when we're not involved in the daily operations? Which brings me to the point of how soon do you need to be putting some of these plans in, in place? Because if you're injured or if you um, get a diagnosis of a disease, it's going to impact your ability to work day by day. This could impact everything and even keeping the farm. When is the right time to be talking about those things and making those plans then? Well, obviously, we all have our crystal ball two days before that diagnosis <laughs> so that we knew we had everything put together, um, you know, with the minimal cost and the least amount of changes that we'd have to make to that plan. Yeah. But it's kind of like planting a tree. You know, they say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Yeah. And that's pretty much your estate planning uh, component. You know, don't put that off. If you're, you know, you're 20, 25, you're married, you now have two kids, and maybe you're starting to own some ground, at minimum, putting a will together for your estate plan should be done. But there's some estate planning components that you could already be looking at at that point. Um you know, just to make sure that if you do get a bad diagnosis, you get hit by a bus or a train or whatever you want to say get, that you're in a car accident from, you know, there's a lot of scary out in the world. And the more that we can plan and prepare for that, the better off the transition happens and the continuation of your funds and your assets going where you want them, the better are, your odds are if you have something in paper you know, taken care of, written down, signed, and all legal and formalized. Yeah. 
and uh, have those conversations. Now, have them often, and they become a little bit less scary as you go again and again. And reach out and get some assistance. So <laughs> we'll put a link up yeah, to uh, yeah. the, the University Extension uh, workshops and Leaving a Legacy programs. Heather, Gen- Heather Gessner is with uh, the South Dakota State University Extension as a livestock business management field specialist. Always a delight to have you on. Here's to next time. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 1936, Rapid City's Dinosaur Park on Skyline Drive was dedicated. The park includes seven concrete dinosaurs. Most of those dinos were constructed as part of a Works Progress Administration, or WPA, project. The dinosaurs were designed by lawyer and sculptor Emmett Sullivan. They were constructed with a two-inch metal pipe frame covered with wire mesh and concrete skin. The park was built as a tourist attraction and city park. It originally included five dinosaurs representing the prehistoric history of the Black Hills region. Now, the dinosaur replicas include a Tyrannosaurus rex, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Apatosaurus, formerly the Brontosaurus, and an Anatotitan, formerly known as a Trachodon. Originally, the dinosaurs were painted gray, but now they have a green and white color scheme that dates to the 1950s. Two additional prehistoric creatures were added later, a Dimetrodon and a Protoceratops. Skyline Drive was built as a companion project, and the complex was intended to capitalize on the tourist traffic going through Rapid City to Mount Rushmore National Monument. The scale of the dinosaur replicas is generally correct, but current research shows their forms are an outdated view of dinosaur anatomy. Dinosaur Park has been changed over the years with additional asphalt paths, stone retaining walls, terraces, and railings, but it remains a unique tourist attraction. Dinosaur Park in Rapid City officially dedicated on this day in 1936, with construction continuing until 1938. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. We've got more in the moment after the break. Carter Johnson returns. We'll talk about the ecology of Dakota landscapes. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Will you walk through South Dakota landscapes every day? Take a look around you. Do you know how the landscape before you got this way? Those are questions that W. Carter Johnson seeks to answer using a wide literary lens. He's a distinguished professor emeritus of ecology at South Dakota State University, and he's co-author of the book Ecology of Dakota Landscapes, Past, Present, and Future. His co-author for that book is Dennis Knight, professor emeritus at the University of Wyoming. And Carter returns to the show today. He's with us from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at South Dakota State University. Carter, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for the invitation. 
this book begins with thoughts on how even as a child you were looking around and wondering how things became the way they did from migrating birds to a boulder in a field. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of your early observations before you even knew that you would grow up and study ecology. Um, I was interested in birds very early on and the first bird that I apparently saw and by, and I uh, was asking my mother uh, what it is, she said it was a flicker. Hmm. And so I thought what she was saying is that all things that looked like that were flickers. <laughs> so everything that I saw after that was a flicker, not a bird, not a robin, not a blue jay. So uh, it took a little while to get that out of my brain. But my parents were very outdoors uh, oriented hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, all of those things. And so we were always out in nature, and uh, especially in a wetland, uh, out there hunting ducks. But I'm, as a kid, I'm, you know, pulling on the cattails and seeing other stuff and the frogs and, and all the insects and plants. And I was so impressed by wetlands. There was always something to see. So I, it's, I'm deeply rooted in, uh, in nature, and it was very natural for me to take that and uh, begin to try to make a living from it, which I've been able to do, fortunately. So when did you get to the point where not only did you realize the flicker was a specific you know, type of bird, but you realized that not all flickers are the same? Like, when did you individualize? <laughs> that frog is a specific frog, and it's different from the next frog that I saw. They're not all the same frog. Well, it was some of that uh, because if we were duck hunters, so that we knew about the different kinds of ducks. So I, I knew yeah. that the ones with the red breasts were one thing, and the green head were another. And so I got that figured out for ducks. I don't, I'm not sure that we knew there were different frogs, uh, but it wasn't. In, in the birds wasn't until I took uh, an ornithology course at Augustana College. Yeah. Uh, whether I really is how many different species of birds there really were, and yeah. how many birds that have been flitting around in the trees that uh, I never even noticed. So I, I uh, have to think back on, on that course as being essential for my growth and development of nature. Yeah, this book is so um, beautifully done, first of all, full color illustrations, lots of photographs and charts and graphs, um, and, and just so useful, but also engaging, entertaining to read. What did you set out to do when you were um, undertaking the kind of monumental task of writing uh, the ecology of Dakota landscapes? Well, our, our impetus was uh, that there wasn't a book that included all of the uh, ecosystems of the Dakotas. And remember, the motto of South Dakota used to be uh, the land of infinite variety. Yeah. And then it got changed to be Mount Rushmore. And we thought, well, you know, there's more to our state than Mount Rushmore. That's a wonderful place. And I go there a lot, but uh, there's a lot more there. And so we thought having a book that goes through the past, present, and history of all of these natural ecosystems all in one book, and not only how they're structured, why they're important to us, uh, but also about their future, thinking about the climate change and is that going to be a, an issue here, so we, we wanted a lot of things in the book uh, of that sort that would be interesting to people. and But yet we wrote it at a general level. It's not, it's not a, a only for scientists yeah. and for technical people. It's, it's really from a high school level up. 
And spoiler alert, climate change is a factor here, and it is continuing to be a factor here, so much that you write really in nearly every chapter insights into climate change for the area that you're unpacking in that chapter. Broadly speaking, how do you explain to people this, this, the, the weight of the impact that we're seeing now and the speed, the rate of it? Um, well, you know, it, it's always uh, the, the news keeps getting a little worse in the, in the sense that things are beginning to look more and more serious. Uh, the book was completed about two or three years ago, and I'd say just in the last two or three years, the evidence is getting stronger and more and more people are just, just living in, in this world, realizing that they don't necessarily have to read a book about it, but they, they can tell themselves that this is not, uh, not normal. This isn't, we have to think about a new normal now. So, but we did want to make sure that we, at the time, we uh, completed each chapter with a, a review of what the scientists are saying, what they're telling us about each of these ecosystems. Yeah. And so that's, that, I think that's an important part of, of the book. Let's go back to the wetlands, um, just for the sake of focusing on one kind of ecological landscape. How would you explain to someone who was just moving here why they exist? Um, well, it's, it's glaciation that produced uh, our, our wetlands, at least the natural ones. So we have a chapter called Landscape History. And in that, we talk about uh, all the way back, we go back to 60 million years ago when T-Rex and, and so on. But we, we get into, uh, you know, a lot of the, the uh, other, other aspects uh, of things that I think we're, we're, we're uh, addressing that, that question. Um, um, yeah, maybe you could rephrase that question yeah. again. Yeah, what, I think what I'm trying to, to get at here is the sense that there is such variety in South Dakota. If you're new to this region and you're looking across the landscapes for the first time, it can be mm -hmm. hard to understand. It can be almost incomprehensible that variety. Why is this here and this is here? Why are the Badlands yeah. different in South Dakota than they are in North Dakota? Why do we have this uh, this track around the Black Hills? And you explain all this in a lot of really fascinating mm -hmm. ways. That's sort of the area that um, of the book I wanted you to talk about there. Uh, yeah, and the east-west uh, structure. So when you cross the Missouri River from east to west, you're going into a a whole other world. Yeah. You're going into an aged landscape. You've just left a glaciated landscape, uh, and the ice left only about 12,000 years ago. And that's a pretty short period of time in geological time. So that that is the biggest uh, component, I think, of a long-term change that, that explains why these two places are so different is the uh, the connection between glaciation and non-glaciation. The book is called Ecology of Dakota Landscapes, Past, Present, and Future, and we have been talking with um, W. Carter Johnson, one of the co-authors and distinguished professor emeritus of ecology at South Dakota State University. I hope this is just one of uh, many conversations we have as we dive deeper into this book in the future, Carter. But for today, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.
summer, Beethoven will bring classical music to rural South Dakota communities. But no, we are not talking about the composer. We're talking about a mobile stage. It's a collaboration between engineering and artistry. Beethoven, that's V-A-N, Van. Mike Ray is communications manager at South Dakota Mines, where the mobile stage was designed. Brett Walfish is executive director of the Rushmore Music Festival. That's the organization who sponsored the project and will perform pop-up concerts using it this summer. They are both gathered at SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in our Rapid City spaces now. Brett Walfish, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me on today. Mike Ray, welcome. Thanks. Thank you so much. Mike, I want to start with you and tell us a little bit about the the genesis of this idea because the engineers at working with the musicians trying to figure out how to solve a problem, which is how do you get classical music to remote areas in South Dakota? It sounds like a tailor-made for a Minds project. Tell us a little bit about where it began. So all of our seniors in engineering do a senior design project, and we often uh, encourage them to do projects that are part of community outreach. Uh, and when we got some outreach from the great folks at the Rushmore Music Festival and talked about this problem they had, our students jumped on that and said, hey, we think we can design this mobile stage that will work to help you uh, bring this music to uh, you know the rural parts of South Dakota and the Great Plains. And so it's something that our students were excited to do. Uh, a few of our professors uh, helped out and, and jumped in as well. And this was a year-long process. So that started over a year ago, and it took about a year to, to get it to get it done. There are some very specific design challenges <laughs> um, at being the parent of a cellist and having, first of all, trying to figure out how to safely transport the fragility of a cello across any landscape in South Dakota <laughs> through any kind of weather. I cannot imagine bringing a stage. So, Brett, tell us a little bit about some of the unique challenges that this project presented. Well, first, we, we began this project because we realized that there was a deep need to be able to bring classical music to the people wherever they were, especially coming out of the last few years where a lot of indoor venues were no longer even able to present concerts. We said, well, how can we bring a concert to the people anywhere they are, whether it's you know in a, in a assisted living facility, to a park, to a you know the, a parking lot of of a of a business anywhere that you can imagine that there's enough space to park a trailer we can open this up and have a, have a concert for us one of our biggest uh, challenges in in finding any venue is actually how do we have a a, a piano to play on <laughs> because we have a very prominent piano component with our faculty and students in our in our programs and what we learned through this project was we we felt that by partnering with School of Mines and the mechanical engineering students there, they could help us build a custom-designed piano lift that goes in this stage that safely transports a baby grand piano so we can not only have strings that you know those of us who play know fit in the back of a car pretty easily, but actually having a piano, which is quite a task to move. Yeah, not, not just a, a, an upright piano, not just a, a keyboard on a stand, but a baby grand piano. Mike Ray, what kind of engineering challenges did that present? These students did great work, and in, in, if, if they couldn't buy the part, they made it. So they went into the machine shop, they put it on the machines, they designed it in CAD-CAM, they you know, put, put the you know, 
parts into the machines and, and, and built them themselves. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, carving them out of aluminum, uh, sometimes 3D printing them. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, the iterative design process, you design, it fails, you design again until you get it right. Um, and the work they did to, to put this baby grand piano kind of hangs on the side of the, of the trailer, on the inside of the trailer, and then it can rotate down when it's time for the concert, um, I think is, is really cool and innovative. And, and it was a fun challenge for our students as well to, to figure out how to do uh, all of this, uh, you know, safely and securely uh, for these kind of instruments that, uh, you know, cost way more than the pickup truck I'll ever drive. Right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really cool to be able to, to, to see this, this work out in the end. Tell me who some of these students were, Mike. Uh, so we have uh, uh, mechanical engineering students, all of them. Uh, now they've all now graduated. Mm -hmm. Logan Leader, Zach Moore, Joseph Zoller, and Eric Moore. Um, and these were, again, they were all senior design students, so they've now graduated and they're off out in the world. I wish they could be here uh, yeah. speaking, but we couldn't get them in today, so that's that's why you have me. Yeah, but also tell me what is the future for this? Is, this pro is it a, a prototype? Is there a commercial application for other states who are trying to figure out how to take classical music on the road? That is a great question, and it's something I would like to see explored. And we often try and explore at Minds. Uh, you know, when our students come up with these great innovations and inventions, we're always looking at the best ways to take them into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that could be certainly explored in the future, but it's, it's a great question. Yeah. Brett, tell us a little bit about the Russian Music Festival and what kinds of concerts you're planning on taking to what areas of the state. So our, our program will be operating this summer from June 17th through July 31st. Uh, every weekend, we, we will be doing faculty performances up in Meyer Hall, up in Spearfish. And then we are actually, now that we have the Beethoven complete and ready, we are just now in the process of booking performances for it, uh, mostly for our students during those six weeks at the present moment. So that is actually something we're looking for. If anybody thinks that they would be a great candidate, we'd urge them to reach out and send us an email and uh, to office at rushmoremusicfestival.org. And we will definitely be in touch. And if it, we feel like it's a good match for a, a student pop-up concert, uh, we will be very glad to make that work together. And people can also join our, our mailing list to find out where those concerts are going to be taking place. As we move into the future beyond the summer, it's really exciting because we are now able to uh, take these concerts into the our, what's for our, us our off-season mm -hmm. and do concerts across the state, uh, really focusing kind of on a tri-state region. We'd like to just bring concerts to places that might not have as much access as we even do here in Rapid City or Sioux Falls would. Yeah. Well, um, do you retune the piano every time? Does it stay in tune? Transporting a piano um, seems like a, a, a multi-layered challenge. It is. So every time it comes from uh, horizontal as it, as it normally is to vertical to transport it, it does need to be retuned each time. And we're very grateful that we have a wonderful... Uh, <laughs> in residence piano tuner that we've had with us for the last three years now. Nice. Horizontal to vertical. I have to see how this works. To <laughs> um, Brett, why does it matter? Like, what Can you remember the first time that you saw classical music played and thought that's something that you could do? do you, was it in a concert hall? You know, that's a wonderful question, and I am, I am of the minority of people that does not remember my first concert because I was probably so young. Yeah. I started playing the violin when I was three, and I've been attending concerts as long as I can remember going back. Uh, I do remember when I was about seven or eight, uh, my teacher was then uh, assistant concertmaster of the, of the then Florida Philharmonic Orchestra before they folded, and I remember she got my mother and I tickets to uh, attend one of their concerts, 
And I just remember being in the back with binoculars and <laughs> looking at all the violinists and trying to imitate their bow holds and figuring <laughs> out how can I how can I sound as good as they do because I'd already practiced quite yeah. a bit and I had a long way to go still. Yeah. So classical music performances for for me, I'm lucky it's always been a part of my life. Yeah. But I think being able to bring concerts to people who might be intimidated by a concert hall and just making it very readily accessible to everybody and answering questions and doing things yeah. like that just to show people that this is great art, great music. I always joke, everybody loves classical music. They just don't always know it yet. <laughs> and, and it's and, for and you. Can, yeah, very quickly, Mike. you got about 30 seconds. No, thank you so much. Uh, and being able to bring this to small towns in South Dakota is really great. Some of our students came from those small towns. Yeah. And they said, boy, it would be have wonderful if we had had this kind of chamber music when we were growing up in Newell or Faith or Lemon. And so that idea of this uh, a pop-up concert on a summer evening in a park in Lemon is just really cool to me. I'm excited to see this happen. Yeah. And our students were very excited to help. Yeah, me too. I would drive to go see that. I think that's pretty awesome. Me too. So <laughs> yeah. Mike Ray is communications manager at South Dakota Mines, and Brett Walfish is executive director of the Rushmore Music Festival. We'll put some more information and photos, I think, are up already online as one of our SDPB reporters uh, did the story as well. It's the Beethoven. <laughs> you can find it at sdpb.org slash news. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Thank you. And from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh, and thank you for listening.